If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. If you are new with us today, we are making our way through this incredible book, doing the best we can to be dogmatic where we believe Scripture is being dogmatic. But maybe to hold some things a little bit looser where we're not so sure. We've made our way to chapter 14. It seems to me as we head towards the end of the book of Revelation, we're, we're getting a sense of more and more towards the end when Jesus is going to come again, vindicate his people, and judge the world. We'll see some of that for sure this morning. Begin, though, in verses 1 through 5. And if I could summarize it, maybe it is this. Let's sing the song of the redeemed. In verse 1, then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Here is another vision that John the Apostle sees. And it's a vision of the Lamb. Of course, that is tying us back to Revelation chapter 5, where John saw the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and then he saw the Lamb as if slain. Jesus Christ, the one who gave his life for us to redeem us from our sins. And John here sees the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. I think this is the heavenly Jerusalem, and there with him the 144,000. And of course, if you've been with us, you know that I have interpreted that along with others from Revelation chapter 7 as equal to, parallel to, the innumerable number of saints from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. I understand that there's another way to take the 144,000 as referring to a literal 144,000 Jews who will be saved in a future tribulation period. But I'm with those who think from Revelation chapter 7 that John heard about 144,000 and then he saw an innumerable number from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and that those are the same. And so I think that John is seeing here a vision of Christ and his people in the heavenly Jerusalem. These who have been stamped, if you will, with his name, and the name of his father written on their foreheads. This is in contrast to those we just saw at the end of chapter 13 and verse 16 that the false prophet seeking to encourage the worship of the beast, he causes all the small and great, the rich and poor, the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. It's those who give their allegiance not to Jesus Christ, but their allegiance to the beast and the dragon who empowers him, Satan. It's those who don't follow Christ 
and they do not have the seal that they belong to God. In fact, they have a seal from the enemy that says they belong to him. But here are the people of God with the lamb who was slain for them in the heavenly Jerusalem. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. We've seen that kind of imagery before. It's loud, it's strong, it's powerful. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. In the Old Testament harps were played in the context of joy. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. You can hear the language of Revelation chapter 5. When he, Jesus, the Lamb, had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, the Lamb, to take the book, to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Here John sees the Lamb and sees his people, and he hears a song being sung. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste, or literally in the Greek, they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. I think this is language that John is putting together to describe these are those who've been faithful to Jesus. It's not literally that these are virgins, but this is gathering on the language of faithfulness to God. They have not chased after or given their allegiance to some other. They have been faithful to their Lord. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They are disciples of Jesus Christ. They follow him. They know that in and of themselves they don't have what it takes, but in Jesus they find it all. And so they look to him and they learn from him and they apply his truth to their life. And they adopt his purposes and his values and his priorities in their life. They follow Jesus, not perfectly, but it is the pattern of their life. These are the ones that have been purchased or redeemed from among men, 
and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. This lie could certainly be that, that they speak truth, that, that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, they are, are given to speaking the truth and loving the truth. It could be drawing from the Old Testament with, that, that those who would hold an idol in their hand would be holding a lie, something that's not true, that indeed is not a God. No lie was found in their mouth. These, in other words, are followers of Christ. And they are with him in the heavenly Jerusalem. It seems to me that if a preview of God's imminent victory that's going to come through Jesus, and that this is the destiny of those of us who follow Christ, that we will sing the song of the redeemed. It's interesting that no one could learn this song except the people of God who'd been redeemed. And I don't know if this is the idea, but this is what comes to mind. Have you ever been sitting with a group of people and one of them begins to tell a funny story that some of the others were a part of. And they tell the story and everybody laughs, but you. And you're, they, you know, you're kind of one, you feel a little bit left out and they look at you and they say what? You had to be there. You had to have experienced what we experienced to get it and to understand why it's so funny and to join into the laughter. And I wonder if that same idea is going on here. It's only Christians who know what it means to be purchased, to be redeemed. The fallen angels don't know. God did not send a savior for them. Even unbelievers don't know what it's like to, to go from being a sinner under the wrath of God to being saved under his grace and his mercy. As the man said, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see to go from darkness to life, to light, from spiritually dead to spiritually alive, to alienated from God because of our sin, to reconciled to God and adopted into his family because of Christ, to go from being enslaved to sin to being free from sin, to the insecurity that comes because of our sin and the guilt to secure in the Father's love, to go from what Paul would call the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son, to go from being condemned to being justified. Only Christians know that. Angels don't know it. Unbelievers don't know it. And maybe they can 
pronounce the syllables, but they can't sense the significance of this song of the redeemed. You and I are going to sing to the praise of Jesus Christ one day. But there's no reason why you and I have to wait until then. Do you sing the song of the redeemed? Let us sing praise to him. Oh, man, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I. Practice while you're all alone. When you're driving down the road, put on some great worship songs. Some of the songs that we sing here and sing them with all your might when nobody else can hear. That kind of practice, you begin to say, you know what, then when, when I gather with the people of God on Sunday and we sing about Christ and his salvation, oh, I want to join in. And I know it happens to me all the time. Your mind's going here and your mind's going there and everywhere. Believe me, I know because I'm down there and I'm thinking, what am, I'm about to preach, I'm about to preach, I'm about to preach. Right? So I have to keep bringing myself back. And you say, yeah, Mitch, but I don't love all the songs that we sing. Well, I don't love all the songs that we sing either. But what I try to do when it's a song that I may not, you know, maybe that's not my favorite, I'm looking for truth in it. Even if I don't like the tune or this, that, or the other, I'm looking for truth. And I'm looking to connect it to the biblical truth that I know it's coming from. And then I want to sing to the praise of God who gave his son to purchase me from my sin so that I might be with him forevermore in the heavenly Jerusalem. Let us sing the song of the redeemed. Well, we better keep moving. And what we're about to see, years ago, a pastor named Gene Edwards wrote a book called A Tale of Three Kings. It was about Saul and David and Absalom. Good, thin book. I love thin books. Well, we're about to see A Tale of Three Angels in verses 6 and following. What else did John see? I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. We're getting to the end here, folks. John sees an angel who proclaims that the hour of God's judgment has come. 
And we're about to read all about it in the chapters ahead. The idea seems to be for you and for me that it could be right around the corner. We looked in chapter 13 last week about a coming Antichrist. And we glanced at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it seems that the Thessalonian believers had thought maybe we have missed it. And Paul wrote that chapter to remind them and say, no, 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 you haven't missed the coming of the Lord. The apostasy has to come first, and then the man of lawlessness has to be revealed, and then Jesus will come. And I wonder, though, friends and brothers and sisters, it seems to me, while I have no idea when, the reality is, though, is it not that, that the apostasy that Paul talks about the falling away of many that Jesus talks about could be beginning right now and going on in the days that you and I live. So Paul says the apostasy must come first. The reality is that it, it very well could be happening right now. The man of lawlessness has to be revealed. I have no idea who he is. You all know that. Could it be true, though, that he's already been born? That this one who's going to be energized by Satan and who apparently is going to come and epitomize the antagonism and opposition to the people of God could be alive now? These events that lead up to the coming of Jesus, maybe a thousand years from now, but maybe, maybe we're meant to, as every generation is, to live in light of the fact that it won't be long. The hour of his judgment has come, and thus this gospel is proclaimed. And you say, boy, Mitch, it doesn't, doesn't sound like gospel here. The angel proclaims, fear God, give him glory, worship him who made the heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. I think the reality is we don't have to hold the angel or John to some standard that says you have to say it all every time. We who've read the book clearly know that one only comes to truly fear God and give him glory and worship him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who gave himself upon the cross and rose again and who ascended to the Father's right hand and as we sang earlier, his arms are open wide and any and all who will repent of sin and trust in him can have forgiveness and be reconciled to God. And so, a passage like this to any who don't believe in Jesus would encourage a preacher like me or you to say, don't wait. The hour of his judgment has come. It's right around the corner. 
And even if he tarries, the reality is you and I might die today, tomorrow, or next month. Take it from me. You can have something growing in your body that could kill you in months, and you don't even know it. The Bible says it's appointed to a man to die once and after that to face judgment. So friend, heed the eternal gospel message to turn away from yourself and your sins and to look to God through his son, Jesus Christ and take him and follow him. Verse 8, another angel, the second one followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that Babylon was one of the great enemies of the people of God. Nebuchadnezzar and those who would follow him leading the Babylonian Empire, and they are the ones who came into Jerusalem and opposed God's people and destroyed the temple and scattered the people into exile. And John seems to use Babylon, and he will, as we get later into the book, to describe that, that imperial force that opposes God's people and seeks to lead them astray, persecute them, and entice them to give their devotion not to Christ, but to anything else. Bust Fanning says, John uses Babylon here and later in Revelation not to refer literally to the city in Mesopotamia, but as a typology of evil drawn from the ancient and prominent imperial enemy of God's people in the Old Testament that destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and exiled its population. I think if I follow and understand John rightly, he may be saying, that you and I live in Babylon. That it may be what's described elsewhere in the Bible as the world. The world system, political systems, economic systems, social systems, religious systems, philosophical systems, educational systems that are headed by Satan that leave God out. That seek to deceive God's people, to discourage God's people, to distract God's people, to scare God's people, and others so that they won't give their devotion to Jesus, but rather their allegiance elsewhere. Nancy Guthrie says, 
that Babylon is the source of all ugliness, perversion, and unsatisfying consumerism and consumption that wrecks so many lives and will on that day lose all of its allure. No longer will it be able to deceive and destroy. As the angel says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Meaning, I think, this world system that is opposed to God and seeks to crush you and me in our faithfulness to Christ is going to fall. We'll read about it in 17, 18. So, I think, don't trust it. Don't look to it. Maybe in the words of Augustine, this is the city of man that is at odds with the city of God. And just as Satan's decisive blow or the decisive blow against Satan was leveled at the cross in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, so too was the fatal blow to this system that he oversees. And both Satan and the world of Babylon are dead man walking. They're destined for destruction at the coming of Jesus. So all that the world has to offer, all the promises of security and satisfaction will be shown to be empty. It will all so soon perish. So turn to Christ. Don't trust the stuff of this earth to give you meaning, security, satisfaction, and life. It is destined to perish. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. It lasts forever. Young people, we just sing, I put my trust in Jesus, and he's never let me down. And you may be young, and you may be thinking, is this true? Is Christ real? If you listen to me, I'm 49 years old. I've been down the path a little bit. But I know this room is filled with others who've walked with Jesus for a long, long time. And they have pushed back as best they can upon the promises of the world to trust in Christ and follow him. And I can testify, and I think they will too, that Jesus will never let you down. The world will. There are passing pleasures in sin. It's fun, but for a moment. But there are pleasures at the right hand of God 
that last forever. Babylon, this world in which we live, with its many, many voices crying out for our devotion, is fallen. Fallen is Babylon the Great. It's alive and well right now. We are still in this present evil age, to use the word of Paul. But this day is coming sooner maybe than we know. There's a third angel, verse 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice. Now, I'm about to preach this a little bit, and as I do, I want you to wonder, well, if I was preaching, what would I say? Because one fellow said this language is, quote, remarkably intense. Another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. Now, let me say, I don't think that this is a literal mark on the forehead. Just as I don't think up in verse 1, God's seal upon his people written on their foreheads. I don't think it's literal. I think it's, it's, it's symbolic language about the people of God that you belong to me. I put my seal upon you, God says. And yet those who don't follow Christ, but rather give their devotion elsewhere to the beast, the dragon, the world system headed by Satan, they too get a mark that they are owned by the evil one. He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. In other words, unbelievers who do not follow Jesus. This is their destiny. Remarkably intense. The wrath of God mixed in full strength. It's not diluted at all in the cup of his anger. Tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. If you were preaching, what would you say the Bible teaches here? And it's not just here. The position of the Bible, no matter how uncomfortable it makes you and me feel, is that there is a place that Jesus called hell in which unbelievers will experience, here are the three phrases, eternal conscious torment. 
in our modern era. And maybe they have been throughout church history, but seemingly across the board, the majority position of the Christian church throughout the last 2,000 years has been just that. But in the modern era, at least two other views have taken some prominence, even among Christians. One position is called annihilationism. That in fact, the Bible does not teach that, that people will spend eternity in hell. Rather, they might spend some time in hell, but ultimately they will be annihilated out of existence. It's called annihilationism. The other one is universalism. Yeah, the Bible may seem to, and in fact does talk about judgment for sinners, but, but we're, you know, we, we know better. And the reality is, the truth is universalism. Universally, everyone will be saved. Of course, the Catholic notion of purgatory. That yes, people may experience hell for a bit, for a while, but no, they're not going to be annihilated. They will eventually then be accepted into heaven. Yet the Bible seems to me, here and elsewhere, to say, no, unbelievers will not eventually be annihilated. They will experience separation from God forever. No, universalism is not true. The Bible does not teach that ultimately everyone is going to be saved. No, there is no idea of purgatory where people will be eventually ushered into the kingdom of God. This is remarkably intense language that speaks to the reality of an eternal conscious torment away from the presence of God. And so, friends, if you have never put your trust in Jesus, you must. The Apostle Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, talking about the Thessalonians, that they had turned to Christ who delivers us from the wrath to come. The Bible holds out very, very bad news for sinners like you and me. But then it bursts forth with very, very good news that in Jesus Christ you can be forgiven of all of your sins and reconciled to God and have the assurance of eternal life through Jesus. This also has a message for you and, and me who Follow Jesus. Verse 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints. That's, that's the New American Standard. I like the other translations, the Net Bible. This calls for the steadfast endurance of the saints. Or if you have an NIV, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God. 
or if you have an ESV, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. It's as if I could say, here we go again, because this has been the theme throughout the book, right? Patient endurance from the people of God. Cling to Christ. Hold on to Christ. Keep holding on to Christ. Don't give up. Keep trusting Him. Keep holding on. Keep walking with Him. Fall down and get up and fall down and get up and fall down and get up over and 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 over until He takes you home or He returns. Patiently endure. Cling to Jesus. I think along with others, these sorts of, we might call them warning passages here and elsewhere in the New Testament are one of God's means to his children to keep us clinging to Jesus. I think John understands the same. The reality of what happens to those who, who don't follow Jesus is here meant to encourage and persuade you and I who do follow him to never let him go. And those who are truly saved never will. This is one of his means to help you and me keep clinging to him and to keep persevering. Verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. I think John may be saying to these believers to whom he writes, and, and the voice from heaven which he hears. Keep following Jesus. Keep trusting in Jesus. No matter how hard it gets, the pressures, the persecution, whatever, he's faithful, he's good. Keep clinging to him. And if you may die, it's a blessing. The opposition, the struggles, the weariness of living in Babylon in this present evil age will be over. And rather than the opposition, the struggles, and the weariness, we will experience rest in the presence of the Lord. Up there in verse 11, they have no rest day and night. But to faithful Christians in verse 13, they will rest from their labors. Their deeds will follow with them. God won't forget the faithful deeds of his people. 
their sacrificial service and obedience to him that you and I live out on this earth in this age, God won't forget. Our costly servants' service and allegiance to Jesus will be rewarded when we enter his presence. I've always heard, and it's true in one sense, right? You never see a U-Haul behind a hearse, right? You got a hearse, it's got a coffin inside with a dead body, and you never see a U-Haul on the back. Why? What's the little phrase? You can't take it with you. Right? Be careful living for the stuff of earth and the accumulation of all the stuff we want to accumulate because you can't take it with you. You never have a hearse behind, or you haul behind a hearse. But I don't know. Their deeds follow with them. Maybe there is a U-Haul but maybe it's not filled with the stuff of earth. It's filled with deeds. As we trust in Christ, helped by his spirit, we follow Jesus. We love others. We serve him. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Now, I just want to read the rest and make a couple of comments. We're about to see two visions of harvest. In one of these visions, apparently it's Jesus. He'll have a sharp sickle in his hand and he's going to harvest. And another, it's going to be an angel who will have another sharp sickle and it will be a harvest. Briefly, some think both of these images of harvest have to do with judgment coming upon unbelievers. Others think, and I may be with them, I, that the first harvest is that Christ is going to harvest his people. And indeed, he's been doing that for 2,000 years. And as you and I and Christians the world over proclaim the gospel and more and more people believe in Jesus, a harvest is coming in. But let me read. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another came out, angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city 
and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Remarkable, intense language. They would take grapes, they would put them in a wine press. Some of the things I looked at, people would get inside of the wine press, they would have this bar up top with ropes so they could hold on, and a number of them inside the wine press would just stomp the grapes. Juice would collect and then it would funnel out down into a deal to be collected and fermented and turned into wine. This is a gathering. To be stomped in the great wine press of the wrath. Brothers and sisters, what a chapter. The hour of his judgment has come. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. The hour to reap has come. You and I are meant as followers of Jesus to live in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. and to be, I don't know, strengthened by these realities. And so I want us, maybe, you know, how to apply a text like this. Maybe let's enjoy the sweetness of life in the land of the living. It's a little phrase from the psalmist, right? The land of the living is, is the land that you and I live in right now. We're alive. And we're meant to follow Christ in the land of the living and... You know, we're reading the book of Revelation. There's other things in the Bible which we could read, like the book of Ecclesiastes, which would tell us to enjoy life. Enjoy it. You know, Tara is, is here this morning, but she was gone for the women's retreat Friday night, and, and, and I had the girls, and with our neighbor, we were outside getting, the girls were getting tractor driving lessons out in our, out in our street. And man, what a good time we had. I even learned how to drive a tractor. A lot of fun. The sun went down, and we went inside, and then I said, hey, girls, let's go get some ice cream. Yeah. And so we went to Baskin-Robbins ice cream, and we got some ice cream, and we had a great time. And Saturday, Maddie went off to play with some friends, and Molly, I took her out to ride her horse, and she had the best time, and I had a good time watching her. And then Molly and I watched a couple Western movies. She thinks she was born in the wrong century. (laughs) Molly thinks she should have been born in the late 1800s. Lots of fun, lots of joy to be had. But, you know, that Friday night after going out and getting some ice cream, Maddie went up to uh, play a little video game, I think is what she was doing. And then Molly and I laid on the, laid, laid, laid on the floor. And, and, and we had the sweetest time talking about weighty stuff. Cancer. Fear. And what if? And what if? And what if? There are 
hardships of life, like trials, like cancer, but then there's also things like chapter 12, the dragon who wants to make war with the people of God. In chapter 13, he's going to eventually, he has his little antichrist throughout every age, but apparently there's going to be one who's going to come at the end of the age, and he's also going to have his false prophet, these through whom they seek to deceive you and me and distract you and me and discourage you and me and to, to cause us to be afraid and to give up on faithfulness to Jesus and to turn away from Christ and turn aside to other things. And there's this world in which we live called Babylon, and it says, follow me. Money, gold, we'll see it in 17, gold and silver and fine linens and all this stuff. That's where life is. Come, follow me. There are weighty realities to life that I think John and this whole book of Revelation is trying to say to you and me, there's more to it than we can see with our eyes. Trust Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Persevere in Jesus. If you must give your life for Jesus. And one day, gathered around the throne, you will sing the song of the redeemed forevermore. Let's pray and let's sing. Father, would you help us to hold on tight to Jesus and empowered by his spirit to live a life of love. And Lord, any friends here today who've never trusted in Jesus, might they this very moment turn to him, cling to him, trust in him, for the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God, the promise of eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.